and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Vice is reporting that scientists have found a new and unique flesh-eating plant on the West Coast. Oh, good. Because we didn't have enough of them before. (laughs) This is actually a really cool discovery, especially in how it unfolded. But it's known as Triantha occidentalis. And it's the latest member of the small but fascinating ecological guild of carnivorous plants. So they were motivated to search for carnivory in this particular plant due to some intriguing results of a 2016 study, which found that it lacks a gene that has been lost in other carnivorous plant species. Hmm. This genetic similarity to certain botanical meat eaters wasn't the only clue that it might be carnivorous. The plant also grows sticky hairs on its stem that trap small insects, and it thrives in the kind of nutrient-poor environments that are really typical of carnivorous plants. They did some field experiments in August 2018 where doctoral students had to attach dead fruit flies to the sticky stems of wild herbs. Who can imagine Mm. what the grant writing Mm. request must have looked like? Like, (laughs) hey, we need to attach dead fruit flies to a plant. Can you guys give us some money? Yeah, we need money for that. (laughs) And not only that, the flies were metabolically stamped with heavy nitrogen isotopes. So researchers were able to track how much of this key nutrient the plant might be consuming from its insect prey. Mm. And what they found was that T. occidentalis got as much as 64% of its nitrogen intake from bug flesh. And that alone distinguishes it as a bona fide carnivore. Hmm. What makes this one unique from other carnivorous plants, though, is that most carnivorous plants will keep their bug traps and flowers separated at a healthy distance. So they make sure they're not killing the pollinating insects that help it reproduce. Mm. You know, it's like you don't poop where you work or not. That's not what right. I'm saying. <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at here, right? You got to yeah. keep them separate. Yeah, you keep your kitchen and your bathroom separate. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But what they found was that the plant traps for T. occidentalis may have evolved to ensnare very lightweight insects like midges and gnats, while stronger and larger pollinators like bees and butterflies can just come and go as they please. And so this unusual strategy hints at a previously overlooked mode of carnivory in plants, which now they're hoping to explore further. So they want to see if other species in the genus are also carnivorous, and they also want to get deeper into the genome to see what makes them carnivorous. I mean, it is a little sensationalist, I think, to call it flesh-eating. Like, you said flesh-eating, and I was thinking, like, Audrey, too. Like, this, (laughs) it's just carnivorous. You know, and it may be the fault of the writer of this article to use the word bug flesh when really it's a bit of a misnomer because we're talking about crunchy exoskeleton protein goodness, right? If that's yeah, where you want exactly. to take umbrage, I recommend you tweet the author. I'm sure that would gain a lot of traction. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from PopSci.com. It's titled, What the Heck is a Time Crystal and Why Are Physicists Obsessed with Them? Mm. <laughs> So you're probably quite familiar with the basic states of matter, solid, liquid, gas, Mm -hmm. but scientists have discovered or created dozens of more exotic states of matter 
often bearing mystical and fanciful names like superfluids, Bose-Einstein condensates, and neutron degenerate matter, to name a few. (laughs) And in the last few years, physicists around the world have been constructing another state of matter, a time crystal. Hmm. So what defines any standard crystal, such as a diamond or emerald or even an ice cube, is that the crystal's atoms are somehow arranged in repeating patterns in space. So physicists wondered if a crystal's atoms could be arranged in a repeating pattern of time. Okay. Yeah, you know, kind of abstract. But in practice, that works like this. You create a crystal whose atoms start in one state. If you blast that crystal with a finely tuned laser, those atoms might flip into another state and then flip back and then flip again and so forth, all without actually absorbing any energy from the laser. Hmm. So... If you step back, what you've just created is a state of matter that's perpetually in motion without taking in any energy. And it beats against one of classical physics' most sacred tenets, the second law of thermodynamics, which states that the amount of entropy or disorder always tends to increase. Mm -hmm. Naturally, determined researchers found loopholes, and in 2016, physicists at the University of Maryland managed to bodge together a crude time crystal from a collection of ytterbium atoms, and other groups have created time crystals inside of diamonds. Hmm. But these latest time crystal tinkers did something different. They turned to Google and used a quantum computer, and while many previous time crystals were short-lasting, the scientists behind this latest time crystal are marveling at the stability of what they've created. Gabriel Perdue, a quantum computer researcher at Fermilab, says, The same platform that makes it easy for you to simulate some cool algorithm works just as well, and I would argue even better, for simulating these kinds of systems. So it's sort of like, prior to this point, all of our quantum mechanics computation has been done on traditional computers, but now we can Mm -hmm. actually do quantum stuff in quantum software, or or something like that. I don't know how it works or how you refer to it. (laughs) Well, I think it can't be long before we start getting sci-fi and fantasy series based on, you know, time crystal technobabble. You know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. fire up the time crystals so we can get out of here. (laughs) It's going to be complete nonsense, and I I feel like this is just waiting to be exploited. (laughs) Well, I have to inform you guys that you're already behind the curve because the time crystal was featured heavily in Star Trek Discovery, which is the new reboot. Um, Uh, If any of you watched it, a time crystal is a rare mineral with a non-equilibrium matter state that can be identified by orthogonal indices. And according to Memory Alpha, which is the <laughs> Star Trek wiki, no Federation-aligned species had been able to stabilize them as the decay rate of the lattice was too unpredictable, and they thought that any technology based on time crystals must have been perfected by a four-dimensional race, a.k.a. I look forward to becoming four-dimensional. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't mind being a four-dimensional race. That sounds all right. Yeah. Right? And so time crystals are very real, both in real world uh, <laughs> right. you know, science and physics. I don't think you can go to the Star Trek wiki and be like, look, it's here. So they're very real. Like- <laughs> <laughs> and they did feature on a recent episode of Rick and Morty, but I don't think that they're the same time crystals. Well, you know what? Rick and Morty is as scientifically rigorous as Star Trek. They just take it in a very different dimension. That's true. Yeah. It, it requires a lot of intelligence to watch. <laughs> okay. Next link. <laughs> next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next article is from The Guardian, and it's called Interoception, the Hidden Sense that Shapes Well-Being. So according to Manos Tsakiris, a psychologist at the University of London, interoception is one of the fastest moving areas of research in neuroscience. And it's really easy to test your sense of interoception, or at least one facet of it. All you have to do is close your eyes 
and relax for a second and see if you can sense your own heartbeat without actually touching a pulse point on your body. If you're in tune with your body, you should be able to feel it in your chest and maybe even like hear it a little bit in your ears. Whereas if you're stressed or anxious or just generally not very in tune with your body, it may take you a second to locate it or you may not be able to find it at all. So basically, interoception is the conscious awareness of your own organs, including not just the heart, but also the lungs, gut, bladder, kidneys, and more, all of which have sensory nerves on them and are constantly sending signals to our brain, but we may or may not be receiving them at any given time. And so the fascinating thing is that the body's physical state usually influences our emotions rather than the other way around. Like you think what happens is you see something scary and that makes your heart race and your muscles tense up. But studies have actually shown that your heart and your muscles trigger first and the fear neurons in your brain light up a second later in response to your body rather than to the thing you saw. Hmm. And aside from this evidence of timing, Antonio Damasio at the University of Southern California has also done studies on people with brain damage in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which disrupts the creation of these instinctive physical responses. So if you show someone with this sort of brain injury a horrific or disturbing image, they will not have the kind of chemical bodily response that a normal person would, and they will also report feeling no emotion about it. Like they know they should feel shocked or disgusted, but they just don't. So, again, we have evidence that the body is leading the brain, not the other way around. So for the average person without a brain injury who's just out there living their life, there is a measurable spectrum of being more or less in tune with your body's signals, and that directly correlates to symptoms of depression and anxiety. So to test this, for example, a doctor might connect subjects to a heart meter and then ask them to count the number of heartbeats they feel over a certain period of time and then compare what they felt to the actual number that the machine registered. And what they found is that the more heartbeats a person misses, the more likely they are to say they're feeling depressed or emotionally numb. And the most severe disconnections of interoception can even lead to a feeling of disassociation, psychosis, and delusions. On the flip side, people with anxiety tend to be very aware of their interoceptive signals, but they tend to misinterpret them. So they feel a small increase in heart rate and believe that it's much higher or they rate their own muscle tension and their ratings are way out of proportion to what their muscles are actually doing. But the good news is you can improve your sense of interoception with a little practice. And studies have so far shown some pretty amazing results. Hugo Critchley at Brighton and Sussex Medical School recently ran a study with 121 autistic adults who were guided through the heartbeat detection tasks, followed by detailed feedback on their performance over the course of six therapeutic sessions. Meanwhile, those in the control group were given voice recognition training to help them detect the emotional overtones of people's speech, which they thought was a skill that might be useful in reducing anxiety in social situations, but which did not specifically target their interoceptive awareness, right? Mm-hmm. So Critchley's results were reported in The Lancet earlier this month, and they showed a significant decrease in anxiety in the interoception group, including 31% who completely eliminated their anxiety disorder altogether, Whoa. which what? yeah, was about twice as many as the voice recognition group. And he says they've collected similar data on a more diverse group of patients, but those results have not been published yet. Meanwhile, a different researcher ran a similar program with drug and alcohol addicts, and found their ability to abstain from their substance of choice was significantly increased even a full year after their interoception training. 
And, you know, the interesting thing, of course, is that a lot of this looks like classical meditation techniques. You know, it's be aware of your breath, Mm -hmm. be present in your body. But now they sort of have a more biological and less woo-woo explanation for why meditation might work (laughs) and what parts of the process are really doing something versus what parts are just window dressing. Mm -hmm. And if, like me, you find yourself a little too impatient for most meditative practices, that other classic exercise has also been shown to improve interoceptive awareness. Specifically, and I thought this was just fascinating because it shows it's really about the interoceptive connection and not just the endorphins or other things you might be getting with exercise, but specifically aerobic exercise that forces you to focus on your heart rate and breathing in order to not pass out has been shown to help more with depression, while strength training that requires you to more accurately judge your body's movements so that you're not flinging the weights around the room is more likely to reduce anxiety. And if you have both, you should do weight training aerobics. That's right. Do jumping jacks with a 10-pound weight. That's (laughs) 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 And if, again like me, you're both impatient and lazy, Professor Securis in particular is working on the development of more passive interoceptive training tools, such as a small device that clips to the outside of the ear and delivers a mild electric current through the skin to the vagus nerve. So it acts as sort of a little ping to the system that keeps the body and the brain aware of each other. And he says early results show that it has improved patient scores on the heartbeat detection tasks without any other guidance. They don't know yet if that translates into depression and anxiety relief, but they know that the heartbeat task does. So they, you know, they're sort of A equals B, B equals C kind of doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you don't want to meditate and you don't want to exercise, just shock yourself in the skull all day long and get the same (laughs) results. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. The Africa Report has a really interesting read under their Invention Invention subheader called In a World First, South Africa Grants a Patent to an Artificial Intelligence System. Oh, that's foreboding. Yeah, Yeah, this might get categorized in the what could possibly go wrong, but at first glance, a recently granted South African patent relating to a, quote, food container based on fractal geometry Seems pretty mundane, right? What? But what? the innovation in question involved. Well, <laughs> so that's what the thing invented, but we got to take a few steps back here. Okay. okay. All right. It, the patent is for a food container based on fractal geometry, which, to be honest, sounds totally up the alley of something an AI would come up with. Right. And what these do is that they create interlocking food containers that are easy for robots to grasp and stack. Okay. However, <laughs> What is strange about this is that the inventor is not a human being. It's an artificial intelligence system called DABIS, which stands for Device for the Autonomous Bootstrapping of Unified Sentience, which I could not avoid reading in monotone because what an uninspired name. But Davis is kind of catchy. Anyway, this AI system was created by Stephen Thaler, a pioneer in the field of AI and programming. The system simulates human brainstorming and creates new inventions. And this is a particular flavor of AI that's often referred to as creativity machines because they are capable of independent and complex functioning. Mm. And what makes this crazy is that the patent application lists Davis as the inventor. 
This decision has received widespread backlash from intellectual property experts. Some people are calling it a mistake or even an oversight by the patent office. I mean, it's very easy to assume, you know, a patent clerk in South Africa was like, Davis, huh? All right. We's one name, celebrity mm-hmm. baby names. It's caught on. What, you know, what is the world coming to? Fine, whatever. <laughs> right. um, but <laughs> the author of this particular article is a patent and AI scholar whose PhD aims to address the gaps in patent law created by AI inventorship. So they kind of bury that lead deeper in this obvious opinion piece and not just straightforward Mm -hmm. factual reporting. But the author does suggest that the decision is supported by the government's policy environment in recent years, which seems to be increasing innovation and views technology as a way to achieve this. So let's talk a little bit about these creativity machines, which is, that's a bold claim, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So we know they can process and critically analyze data and learn from it. This process is known as machine learning. Once the machine learning phase has occurred, the machine can quote unquote autonomously create without human intervention. They've been kind of playing with these creativity machines throughout the COVID pandemic. They've got some links to other examples of creativity machines. And, you know, they go on to say that over the years, there have been a lot of types of creativity machines. So before Davis, the same inventor, Thaler, he built another AI, which created novel sheet music. He also credited that previous AI with inventing the cross bristle toothbrush design, which I'd have to dig into because I'm (laughs) like, surely, you know, Oral B or whoever created this design before AI was even really a thing. But Mm -hmm. regardless, Thaler, the AI creator, filed a patent for the cross bristle design and it was granted. So he, you know, took that as proof of concept that an AI can generate truly novel inventions that meet the standard for patents. But he had listed himself rather than the AI as the inventor for right. that. But when it comes to the food containers, he decided to list Davis as the rightful inventor because the invention was completely devised by the AI. And this was the start of their push for AI to be recognized as inventors as part of a larger initiative. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and the European Patent Office rejected these applications in the formal examination phase. And this is for three reasons. First, Their respective patent laws only provide for human inventors, not AI, as indicated by the use of pronouns such as him and her in their text. Obviously, that Hmm. feels way outdated, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then second, ideas for the purposes of patents require the element of mental conception, something of which only a human mind is capable starting to feel a little outdated as well, right? Yeah, because some, I mean, the thing exists. How can they act? Well, it wasn't mentally conceived. Well, it was conceived somehow because it's a thing like that. I, I, that <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it the definition of mental conception that needs to be massaged as far as the legalese goes? Yeah. You know, to say something is mental refers to human only, but does the word mental need to expand? So it's a really interesting kind of conundrum that kind of shows how we're in the early transition of do they deserve rights? I mean, this is we're starting to get into it mm-hmm. now, right? So keep your eyes peeled. And if you build a really good AI, make sure they understand that you are the daddy and that you get (laughs) all of the credit or, you know, whatever your attitude is going to be about this. They may shift. So, I mean, to give a small anecdote, I actually once made a Twitter bot. It was one of the first Twitter bots to take images and process them. But it was also one of the first Twitter bots to get into a conversation with another Twitter bot Uh that did a similar thing. And so they're going (gasps) back and forth and constantly generating new artwork from that forever. And so it kind of brought up the question of like, okay, 
who owns the artwork from this conversation? Uh-huh. Is it the bot? Is it the tool mm-hmm. that you made? Is it the person? And also the mm-hmm. bots were designed to service other people's images. So then it's like, okay, well, is it the person utilizing the bot as a tool? Mm-hmm. I assume it probably just comes down to whatever licensing rules you apply. But in the absence of such, it becomes a very interesting legal question. Yeah, I'm pretty sure once you put it on Twitter, they own it. Yeah. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com. It's titled Pores for Thought, How Sweat Reveals Our Every Secret from What We've Eaten to Whether We're on Drugs. Oh. The ultimate narc. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is written by Sarah Everts. So when Sarah deposited her index fingerprint on the laboratory slide so that Simona Frances could analyze it, she felt as if she was giving her the password to her body's secrets. Most forensic scientists examine a fingerprint's pattern, but Frances, a forensic scientist from Sheffield Hallam University, analyzes the chemicals left behind in those whirls and swirls. Her aim is to develop techniques that will allow her to extract identifying information about people at a crime scene from the sweaty residues they leave behind. Yeah. So fingerprints are inked (laughs) with sweat. Our sweat glands source perspiration from the watery parts of blood, and any chemicals flowing around your circulatory system can, in principle, leak out of your sweat pores. So when she examined Sarah's fingerprints chemistry using a technique called mass spectrometry, Francesca easily found evidence of Sarah Everett's morning coffee thanks to the caffeine circulating in her blood. Had she spiked her latte with a shot of whiskey or snorted a line of cocaine as a breakfast chaser, Francesca (laughs) could have detected that too. In fact, in collaboration with law enforcement, she has previously tested her technique on a stalker's finger mark left behind on a windowsill and found chemical evidence that he had been indulging in alcohol and cocaine. So it's not just mind-altering substances that emerge in our sweat. One nurse in South Africa turned her sweat red thanks to an intense predilection for spicy tomato corn chips. (laughs) Scientists matched the red pigment in her sweat to the chip's flavoring, immortalizing her fondness for knickknacks in medical literature. Researchers are also working on ways to distinguish vegans from meat eaters based on chemicals left behind in sweaty fingerprints, as well as biological sex and age. Hmm. Frances says, to people trained in chemistry, it's obvious that fingerprints aren't just inanimate objects. There is organic and inorganic matter there to be discovered. Sweat also holds markers of disease, certain cancers, for example, as well as a potpourri of other chemicals that hint at our more private selves, such as stress hormones. But although fingerprints are the most minuscule of sweaty marks, many of us leave oodles of perspiration behind (laughs) on spin bikes, yoga mats, t-shirts, bike helmets, you name it. In this era of personal measurement, we may soon be able to use it to learn more about our own inner workings. For example, engineers are designing adhesive patches that are embedded with electronics to capture and analyze sweat, extracting information that could then be sent to smartphones. Smartwatches of the future may monitor your sweat for alcohol and send you an alert when it's wise to take a taxi home. Cars may eventually feature a fingerprint pad that requires drivers to assess intoxicant levels before the engine is permitted to start. Coaches might choose to monitor athletes to improve training regimes, aerobic or anaerobic, based on lactate levels calculated by analyzing sweat produced during a workout. Or, during an important team match, a player releasing biomarkers of stress or fatigue in their sweat might be replaced with someone fresher. Hmm. Some sweat patch developers aspire, very (laughs) funny, to accurately track glucose, an unexpectedly challenging goal, in part because skin bacteria eat glucose as soon as it hits the surface, Mm. disrupting precise measurement. 
The hope is that one day people with diabetes will not have to rely on needles to faithfully track glucose levels. Yet, sweat monitoring, like most technological innovations, has progressive and dystopian potential. Sure. Being able to measure a person's innermost secrets from a fingerprint could make it disturbingly simple for health insurers to identify some pre-existing conditions or for employers to do snap drug tests. There are also tech privacy protocols to consider. If our smartphones and smartwatches become able to monitor our sweaty secrets, what happens if there's a hack to an app or if our information is unwittingly shared with third parties? Mm. I mean, that's just straight up medical data right there. Right. You know? And it almost so, feels like that's mm-hmm. not a hack. That's a given. Anyone who yeah. creates an mm-hmm. app like this is going to be like, hey, could you uh, check off this user license agreement that says we can have mm-hmm. your data? And everyone's going to say yes, because nobody reads those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Fingerprint analysis by law enforcement also creates potential for conflict with civil liberties. In the U.S., law enforcement can surreptitiously collect DNA from a wayward hair or from the saliva on a discarded coffee cup. Although it is likely to be many years before fingerprint chemical analysis reaches the mainstream of forensic analysis, collecting a suspect's fingerprints would be much easier than acquiring a DNA sample. That also feels like there's a lot of potential to be like, well, the robber rubbed up against me and left his sweat on me. Like, how can uh-huh. you really say? I mean, I guess once you start getting into like gender and age, you'd be like, no, that's a 38 year old man's sweat, not your sweat. Uh-huh. But still, you can put sweat on anything. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a whole new black market of just sweat dealers. That's right. That's right. Who could sell me some clean sweat for my drug test? <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This next article comes from BBC Radio, and it's sort of an interview slash profile of a linguistics expert named Amanda Montel on the secret language of cults. And the first thing that caught my eye is that the word cult, as we use it today, has really only had that meaning for the last 50 years or so. Huh. The earliest known usage comes from the 1600s, and back then it just meant homage paid to divinity or offerings to win over the gods. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. By the 19th century, it referred to a group that was new or unorthodox, but not necessarily nefarious. And it was really only after the Manson family murders of 1969 and the Jonestown massacre of 1978 that cult came to mean more of a dangerous group that threatened societies or individuals. So Montel's main focus of study, which she talks about in her book called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, is how these cults use language in particular to reel people in and trap them. She notes that brainwashing really isn't a thing. You have to start with at least a glimmer of willingness on the part of the victim. Mm. But there are some very specific techniques that can take someone vulnerable and push them in a certain direction without the person realizing it. And I probably should note that while everything from here on out is meant to be sort of an expose on their techniques, it could also very easily function as a how-to manual. So if anyone mm-hmm. out there is looking to start your own cult, uh, pay attention, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, don't pay attention. Go off and do something else. Yeah, uh, quick, the world leave a for a place. few minutes. <laughs> so the first step, Montel says, is love bombing, which is the process of showering someone with one-on-one attention and compliments such that they feel really seen. And you find this in everything from religions to inner city gangs, where people who have had a rough upbringing or just never really found their people simply feel welcome and cared about for the first time in their lives. And that can be really powerful and build a ton of loyalty right Mm -hmm. off the bat. Step two, then, is inclusive code language, which can be as simple as slang or as complicated as a structured set of pseudo-intellectual terms that a cult leader has invented as part of a specific philosophy. But either way, it's fundamentally intended to separate us from them, 
and create this really clear way Mm -hmm. of distinguishing who is part of the in-group and who is not. So Marshall Applewhite, for example, the leader of the 90s UFO cult named Heaven's Gate, used long strings of relatively meaningless syllables in Latin. And this made his followers feel both special and intellectually superior. So they responded to it, even though it was literally nonsense. Montel also notes that these inclusive codes are often co-opted from other groups in order to draw on their status and legitimacy. So Jim Jones, for example, used the term revolutionary suicide as he was building up to the mass death of his followers at Jonestown. But that was originally a phrase used by the Black Panthers to talk about political martyrdom. Hmm. In a similar way, Scientology has taken genuine scientific words like engram and valence and given them new Scientology-specific meanings. And in particular, nearly all cults will have alternative terms for the concept of death. Applewhite told his followers, for example, that they would exit their vehicles and find the next evolutionary level above human. And I think it's kind of a given. If someone's trying to tell you that death is a good thing, you're in a cult. You should leave. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And finally, and perhaps most insidiously, is a technique called the thought-terminating cliché. So this is a term coined by psychologist Robert J. Lifton in the early 1960s, and it describes a stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down questioning or independent thought or analysis. So, for example, in the NXIVM cult, which has been in the news a bit recently, the leader would reportedly describe anything he didn't like as a limiting belief and tell his followers, don't let yourselves be ruled by fear. And it was basically just this pat expression that would shut down anyone who disagreed with him or had a question about something. Mm -hmm. And Montel says these types of cliches actually show up all over the place in daily life where they're not necessarily part of a cult, but they are intended to put a stop to valid questions about a situation, including expressions like, boys will be boys, and everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She also has several examples from the corporate world, where employees are increasingly expected to see their job not just as an income, but as an identity, as well as fitness studios, which, and yeah, this blew my mind, Research has shown that a significant number of young people nowadays, when asked where and how they fulfill their sense of spirituality, they name a fitness studio like CrossFit or SoulCycle. <gasps> and sure enough, if you what? walk into any SoulCycle, one of their big aesthetic choices is to have these inspirational phrases printed on the wall, such as, we inhale intention and exhale expectation. So, like, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make SoulCycle a cult, but they're not not a cult either, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, every subscription membership business is a cult yeah, of some kind absolutely. or absolutely. Like, they want your money. At least it's just that and not your life. Yeah, so. and it's the new advertising it's model. It's the only form yes. of advertising that works anymore is people giving personal recommendations because we're all so used yeah, to being advertised because to. aspirational used to be sort of the marketing touchstone, what you aspire to. And now aspirational right. has a very religious, spiritual tone because so many of us are starved for that. Like, even the thing where you said, you know, don't live in fear. I have seen that phrase pop up from so many anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers over the past year. I mean, what you're afraid of is the vaccine. You are absolutely living in fear. <laughs> right, right. No, you can absolutely turn those phrases against anything you don't like. I mean, it's a form of projection. You're basically like, oh, well, you're afraid. It's like, well, we're all afraid. That's called being human. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Some actual good news from New Atlas. A barnacle-inspired bioglue stops bleeding in as little as 
15 seconds. Ooh, oh. that's pretty speedy. Yeah. It is pretty speedy. I mean, this is a, a new invention with a little bit of like biomimicry that really sounds like it's going to be a game changer when it comes to medical professionals and healthcare. So, you know, when you have a traumatic injury, you want to try to stem the bleeding. But the trouble is, it's hard to get adhesives to stick when blood is making everything wet. If you've ever had a real traumatic mm-hmm. injury, I'm sure you've experienced mm-hmm. this kind of conundrum. But now, MIT researchers have developed a new surgical glue that can halt bleeding within 30 seconds, inspired by the super strong underwater adhesive that barnacles use. Of course, barnacles, they stick everything, right? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Even underwater. (laughs) Uh, Trigger warning if you're big into animals here, sorry. Mm. But in tests in rats and pigs, the glue stayed in place for weeks at a time before it's slowly broken down by the body as the tissue heals. So it's not just clotting the blood, it's also sealing up the wound. Yes. I don't even think that it clots the blood. I think it just seals the wound as an adhesive and lets the blood clotting happen naturally instead of in a more speedy way that the hemostatic agents typically induce. That's awesome. Not only that, it's a moldable paste. So it can flow in and fit any irregular shape and seal it, which gives freedom to the users to adapt it to irregular shaped bleeding wounds of all kinds. Like, I don't want to get too gory here, but if you've got a really horrific gaping hole of some kind, this could be a game changer. Yeah, no, I had an, I had an injury on my knee when I was a kid where they were basically like, look, we would stitch it up, but there's nothing to stitch up. You just have a hole in your knee and you're just going to have exactly. to cover it up with gauze and ride the pain out because there's nothing we can do. Whoa. Not yeah. anymore. <laughs> the secret ingredient in this new glue is one that is often the case. Nature has already perfected. So barnacles, we all know, they attach themselves firmly to rocks, ship holes, and even, I think, whales, <laughs> solid surfaces that are often wet and dirty. Aww. So they found that barnacles that live in a marine environment are already doing the exact same thing they're trying to deal with when it comes to complex complicated bleeding issues. And the way it works is this. Barnacles secrete two different liquids to anchor themselves. The first is oil-based, so it can repel and displace water, which then allows the protein-based adhesive a cleaner slate to stick to. So to mimic this stuff, the team built on previous medical adhesives they'd already been developing. In 2019, they described a double-sided tape that could replace sutures in sealing a wound or incision in an organ or skin. This time, they froze sheets of that material ground it into tiny particles, then suspended those in a silicone oil. This had the same effect as the barnacles. The oil displaced the liquid, in this case blood, from the surface, and the microparticles then cross-link and quickly build up a seal. And in their tests, the team found that it worked better than existing hemostatic agents, even stemming the flow of blood in test animals that were given strong blood thinners to prevent the clots. Mm. Oh, so horrible, but (laughs) effective. Uh, The team says the next steps will involve testing the glue on larger wounds or for surgeons to more easily control bleeding during procedures. Good job, MIT. Yeah, I mean, sounds useful. Yeah, I mean, that's like all upside as far as I can tell. Right? That's kind of why I wanted to end on this article. Like, there's hope, (laughs) y'all. I like the fact that it's sort of like a moldable, pourable substance, too. Like, you could play with that stuff. It seems like you could do a lot of art out of it. (laughs) Sure. The applications are pretty uh, intriguing. (laughs) Finally be able to glue my fingers together. At last. Please don't. At last. Because you've been missing out on that experience before. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include 49 million-year-old beetle looks like it was squashed yesterday. 
a Madonna who shows the beauty in going overboard, and Russia's space program just threw a NASA astronaut under the bus. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. As always, if you want to email us, you can do so at feedback at di.show. You can also support our podcast by going to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.